Um, So the first reading comes from Matthew 26, starting in uh, verse 57, Jesus before the Sanhedrin. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spat in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? The second reading comes from chapter 27, starting at verse 11. Jesus before Pilate. Meanwhile, Jesus stood before the governor and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? You have said so, Jesus replied. When he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate asked him, Don't you hear the testimony they are bringing against you? But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. Now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. At that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered... Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he knew it was out of self-interest that they had handed Jesus over to him. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, his wife sent him this message, don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I have suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus executed. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. When Pilate saw that he was getting nowhere but that instead an uproar was starting. He took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. All the people answered, his blood is on us and on our children. Then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. As we spend time looking at the cross over these five weeks together, Uh, We're having a slightly more reflective feel to our evening services. So this evening we're starting with those two readings, and now we're going to hear from 
God's word in Isaiah. I wonder if you would turn back to Isaiah uh, chapter 53 in your Bibles. If you're using those church Bibles, you'll find it on page 741, page 741. And we're going to read from a prophet who's writing 700 years before the events we just heard read in Matthew's Gospel. 700 years before the birth, life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Writing to Judah, the remnant of God's people, the southern kingdom, uh, who are just about to experience God's punishment. And he writes of a servant who is going to be their rescuer. I'm going to start at verse... 13 of chapter 52 again, and read through to 53 verse 9. See, my servant will act wisely. He'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So he will sprinkle many nations. And kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see. And what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him. Nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised, and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted. Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked. And with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. I still don't just remember it, I feel it. The injustice. I went out to buy some sweets from the local newsagent. I came back with a plastic toy, and my dad exploded. He marched me out of the house round the corner of the shop and accused me of shoplifting. It was at least 42 years ago that this happened, and even today the emotions of the event can still niggle me when I think about it. The injustice. 
Sadly, whilst the times that I have uh, suffered injustice are few and far between, my life is littered with the fear and shame of being found out, of feeling guilty, sometimes before people, always before God. And that's why this servant song in Isaiah is so precious to me. And I hope that if you come this evening feeling any guilt and shame, this is a song that will be precious to you too. You see, the first readers of Isaiah were licking their wounded pride by the rivers of Babylon. Uh, They'd been taken into exile now, the people of Judah, by King Nebuchadnezzar, out of God's promised land. And from chapter 1 of Isaiah, he's left them in no doubt as to why this has happened. They're guilty of paying lip service to the God who has loved them and made them his own. Oh, sure, they claim to worship God, but their lives are far from him. But God's love doesn't give up. So Isaiah has been outlining an extraordinary plan of God's rescue. The Lord himself is going to come and visit them. There'll be a a servant who will save Israel from both themselves and from their enemies. A servant who will reveal God's goodness and love to the world. It's a plan that peaks in this song we've been looking at in Isaiah 52 and 53, the the fourth servant song. There are five verses. We're at the fourth verse tonight. It's a song that outlines the heart of God for disobedient people. It's a song that declares God's love in his willingness to suffer for those who reject him. And over the last three weeks, we've seen in verse 1, the servant being shockingly treated Though he's highly exalted by God, he's disfigured by men with the purpose that he might cleanse many nations. In verse 2, we looked upon the servant who was sorrowful to behold, the strong arm of the Lord who grew up as a, a lowly man, a man of suffering, familiar with pain, and we held him in low esteem. Last week in verse 3, we saw the servant at the heart of the song, the middle literally of the song, who was a sacrifice as our substitute. We saw that it was our suffering he bore and our pain he took up. Not not just the pain and suffering of, of living in this world, but the pain of suffering the righteous anger of the God that we have rejected, of suffering the punishment for our sin. And now in verse 4, we see this is the servant who will suffer in willing silence. Of course, this is a song that's utterly fulfilled in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why we had that account of Matthew's account of Jesus' trial read. We saw Jesus suffering in silence. He's the one who came as the Son of Man, not to serve, be served, but to serve. And as we look at Isaiah 53, verses 7 to 9 tonight, I pray that we all here will not just understand more the enormity of what Jesus has done for us. I dare to pray that we might feel more the enormity of what Jesus has done for us. Because firstly, this is a silence to sing. Look at verse 7 with me. He was oppressed and afflicted, Yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, 
And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In the place of cries of despair, he is silent. He was oppressed by others. Like the Israelites had been oppressed at the time of Moses when they were brutally treated by the slave drivers of Egypt in the book of Exodus. So this servant silently bears his back to a cruel whip. That's going to be the cost of bringing his people out of slavery. The the cost of the new exodus. The cost of rescuing God's people. This servant will let himself be led by mere mortals. Let himself. Because actually this verse, verse 7, would be in some ways better translated. He was oppressed and was humbling himself. That, that word afflicted has the sense of actively letting yourself be afflicted, submitting yourself to others. Not because you have to, but because you're willing to. Not because they've got power over you, but because you have the power to control yourself and not react to them. You see, he is like a lamb, not because he is helpless, clueless about his fate, but because he chooses to be a sacrifice. He chooses to stand quietly in the queue. He's like a sheep, motionless in the the hands of its shearers, not because he's terrified, but because he is determined. He offered no verbal defense. He made no physical resistance. Even though it was he who gave life to the liars who surrounded him. Even though it was he who gave strength to the arms that bound and beat him. Even though it was he who gave at that very moment breath to the lips that sentenced him. He did not open his mouth. See, here is the willing servant who suffers silently. Even in the face of the injustice of it all. Verse 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? Without restraint, without justice. Oppression and judgment were the weapons. Even though the judicial process of the day found him totally innocent. So Matthew 26 verse 59. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Or Matthew 27, verse 23. Why? What what crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. That's the reply. What crime has he committed? He doesn't need to commit a crime. Just crucify him. No one opposed his execution. Abandoned even by those closest to him. Hated by those who should have worshipped him. No politician took up his cause. No lawyer fought his case. No journalist uncovered his story. No activist campaigned on his behalf. The world was silent. Because in the end, the world is guilty of Jesus' death. We are all guilty of Jesus' death. Because we've all lived life as though he didn't exist. 
We've all wished at one time or another that we could be rid of him. It would be so more convenient if he just wasn't around. We have all deserted and denied him. We would not have wanted justice because we love to have authority and status ourselves as much as the chief priests and the Sanhedrin wanted their authority and status. We would not have protested his innocence because, well, we're afraid of the crowd as much as Pilate is afraid of the crowd. We would have not stood with him because we're as concerned about our own personal comfort and safety as much as his first disciples, as they ran, were concerned about their own comfort and safety. No one opposed his execution. No one of his generation protested. And we would not have protested either. Because in the end, no one was supposed to. Second half of verse 8. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was punished. He, he died to take the punishment his people deserved. The, the blow from God that was rightfully theirs fell on him. Isaiah's begun to somehow feel how personal this is. Do you see him appear in this verse for the first time in the song? For the transgression of my people he was punished. My people. My people includes me. This isn't justice, says Isaiah. This is grace. My transgression. My crossing the line of God's law. My disobedience. My punishment heaped upon this servant, says Isaiah, me and my people. He was assigned a grave with the wicked in verse 9 and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. Condemned as a criminal to die amongst criminals, the wicked. But there's a hint of, of something better here. He's placed in a rich man's tomb. Uh, the, the normal rhythm of Hebrew poetry is broken to make us sit up and think. Hebrew poetry usually exists in parallel couples. So you'd expect to have assigned a grave with the wicked in the plural and with a rich in the plural. But it's not. It's wicked plural, rich singular. Wicked plural because Matthew 27 verse 38 tells us two rebels were crucified with him one on his right and one on his left. But rich man's tomb singular because Matthew twenty-seven fifty-seven tells us, as evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body and Pilate ordered that he be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own tomb that he had cut out of the rock. His body not just simply dumped in a, a criminal's mass grave, but, but there's a hint here that in death this servant will be honoured. A hint that this death is not a disgrace. This death is not a shameful thing. A hint that behind the scenes God approves of what the servant is doing. Vindication is on the horizon. Victory will soon be declared. This is the death of an innocent man, of one who'd done no violence, Isaiah says. 
one whose mouth only speaks words of purity and truth. Wouldn't those be precious things to be able to say about ourselves? You see, verse 7 showed us that, that he had the ability, the, the, the servant, the Lord Jesus, to, to not speak in the face of all the lies that were being thrown at him. Well, then verse 9 shows us that when he does speak, he has the ability to only say beautiful truth in the world of lies that surround him. When Isaiah saw a vision of God as his ministry started back in Isaiah chapter 6, God seated upon the throne, he wrote this, Woe to me, I cried, I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. When people meet God face to face, they fall on their face. When faced with truth, we see our lies. When faced with the purity of speech, we see the filth that comes out of our mouths that reveals our hearts. When faced with words of compassion and kindness, we see how words of anger and unkindness wreck our own relationships day by day. And Isaiah falls flat on his place. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And so what does the King, the Lord Almighty, do? He comes as a man, as a servant, with clean lips, to willingly suffer injustice, that he might give his life for those who have unclean lips. I've always found it odd that I've been most moved by the trial of the Lord Jesus rather than by the brutality of his death. And I think these verses explain why. It's because as Jesus stands silently and he takes lie after lie, as he waits to be spat upon and struck without even a word of defense, as the one who holds together the universe by the power of his will gives life to the very people who are condemning him, I see his willingness to suffer for me. I see his willingness to go to the cross for me. I see his resolute desire to die in my place. I see the injustice of it all, that he should take my just punishment. And where I would have screamed out in indignation... Where I would have raged in self-righteous anger, he, the only true righteous person to have ever lived, stands silently for me. The willful disobedience of my sin is paid for by the willful obedience of Jesus. That's why he can deal both with my outward disobedience but by offering his outward obedience, he can deal with the, the things that I do that are wrong, but he can also deal with my willfully sinful heart because he offers his willfully submissive heart. Can you see why this is called the servant song? Because first and foremost, the love shown here must cause our hearts to sing. To sing of the silent, suffering, servant king. To, to be lost in wonder, awe, and praise. For the one who willingly suffered 
injustice for us, though he was totally innocent, that Christ died, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. Do you know that tonight? To bring you to God. But this isn't just a song for us who know the Lord Jesus. This is a song for everyone. Because there is also, secondly, a silence to speak. Because the New Testament quotes Isaiah 53, verses 7 and 8, in in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 8. An angel has been sent by Jesus to a man called Philip. And in the power of the Holy Spirit, he's given some pretty athletic work to do. He's told to run up to a moving chariot. And as he does, he overhears a traveler from a distant land, an Ethiopian God-fearer returning from the temple in Jerusalem. And he's reading the prophet Isaiah, but he's got a problem. Uh, Listen with me to Acts chapter 8 and verse 30 to 35. Then Philip ran up to the chariot and heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you're reading? Philip asked. How can I, he said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, Tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Then Philip began with that very passage of Scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Did you notice where the the quote stops? See, the Ethiopian, he has a silent, suffering servant, but he doesn't know why the servant has to suffer. So, So Philip explains. I wonder if he just simply quoted Isaiah 53, the the next verse. Look at verse 8 with me. You see, the Ethiopian stops for he was cut off from the land of the living. His life was taken from the earth. Perhaps Philip went on, well, look what happens next. This is why, for the transgression of my people, he was punished. People need to know why Jesus was silent, but because he was willing. People need to know why Jesus suffered, because we have sinned. And people need to know why Jesus was punished. Because he is our innocent substitute. That's the good news that Philip explained. That's the good news that that goes out into the world in Acts. And that actually must go out into the world through us. It's a good news about a silence that has to be told. A silence that saved us. And a silence that can save others. So if you're not yet a Christian here this evening, if if you've not yet come to this servant Jesus with your guilt and your shame, will you? Will you? Will you ask the Lord, the God of the universe who came in the the person of his son, will you ask the Lord to to lay on Jesus the, the lies and wrong of your life? Will you ask him to lay on Jesus your self-love and your willful disobedience of God? Will you ask him to, to lay on Jesus the mistreatment of those you love and the contempt you have for those you don't? 
And will you ask God to forgive you in the certain knowledge that the servant, the Lord Jesus, has taken all of the sin of all of the people who turn to him? Now we saw last week. He bore it in his body on the cross that we might have peace with God now and forever. That's what the eunuch hears from Philip. That's the, the good news. And the result is the Ethiopian believes and there and then he's baptized. You see, you will never find a, a love that serves you like the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because it is the only love that brings you back to God. And those of us who know this love, we need to remember that the message of this silent suffering servant is powerful to change lives. That's why we are putting on a, a kids club next week. And we will tell them of the servant who silently suffered on a cross for them because that message changes lives forever. That's the message of Acts 8 as the gospel is exploded out of Jerusalem, driven by persecution. As Philip and others speak to people of, of the servant, they are saved. And therefore we can speak with confidence of the Christ who's been crucified for us. That's the message that's both necessary for every person alive and it's a message that's powerful enough to be effective in the life of every person alive. It's a silence that we're called to speak. But lastly also, it's a silence that we're called to live. Because Christians are servants of the servant. And there's only one way to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, in his footsteps. So the Apostle Peter, as he writes to early Christians uh, across the known world, he expects Christians to suffer for doing good like Jesus did. To be innocent and yet be punished as Jesus was. That's why he quotes these verses from Isaiah in 1 Peter chapter 2. He says, To this you were called, because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. See, we who want to, to please God, as the Lord Jesus pleased God, must be willing to do the right thing, whatever the cost. Just like him, he didn't expect justice and he didn't receive justice from the world. So we mustn't expect justice from a world that is actually against the God we believe in. And we won't receive justice from the world. But we must still do good. And sometimes we'll have to bite our lip and suffer silently. It's unlikely to be the, the lashing of a whip for us, though it may well be if you're a Christian in Saudi Arabia. Can I tell you now that Brunei might get a lot of flack in the media, and maybe rightly so. Saudi Arabia doesn't because we sell them a lot of military hardware. But at the same time, everything you hear about being true of Brunei is true of Saudi Arabia. And today, Christians will be beaten by the Saudi police for being Christians today in Saudi Arabia. 
It's unlikely to be the, the lashing of a whip, though, for us, is it? But it might be a, a difficult marriage with a husband who's not a Christian who gives you the sharp end of his tongue. That's what Peter talks about, and he says to wives in that situation, get on, love your wife, love your husband obediently and humbly, and suffer and point him to Jesus. It's unlikely for us to be in an unjust trial, though that could be the case increasingly in our country. But it might be serving an unappreciative boss who falsely accuses you of not really being committed at work because you won't be less than honest. It's unlikely to be death for us in this country, though it will be death for many tonight in other countries. But it might be being made to feel guilty about taking your religion too seriously by a family who aren't yet Christians. Whatever it is, we're to suffer silently in the hope that one day those persecuting us, seeing still our good and loving behavior, will come to know the servant who suffered silently for us. So I think the the power of unjust suffering is one we've lost. We think that, that our comfort and us being seen as righteous is the right way to win people for Christ. That they can see how much better life is with Jesus. It's like the Western dream with a bit more on top, with genuine contentment. But but time and time again that the Bible says that the power of the gospel is demonstrated in lives of weakness. That, That was the message of 1 Corinthians, wasn't it, that we've seen over the term in the evenings. That the truth of the gospel is demonstrated in lives that are willing to suffer for it. And that the love of the gospel is demonstrated by those who are willing to live for their loving Savior, whatever the cost. Those are the lives. Lives like the servant that change the lives of others and take the gospel to the world. See, we know the love of one who willingly suffered to bring us life through his death. So we must be willing to suffer for him that others might receive life through our death to self that we might make him known.